You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Greg Miller, who covers the intelligence beat for the Washington Post. He is a winner of an Overseas Press Club Award for his contribution to a series of stories on the war in Afghanistan. He also has won the Pulitzer Prize for his part in the Washington Post coverage of the Snowden Affair and is a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in a Washington Post series called Permanent War. He has made reporting trips to countries including Afghanistan, Pakistan, Kuwait, and Serbia, and is a California native, previously working for the Los Angeles Times for more than 15 years. He is also co-author of a book, The Interrogators, Task Force 500 and America's Secret War Against Al-Qaeda, which is about the first unit of Army interrogators to serve in Afghanistan. Greg, thank you for taking the time to join us here on SpyCast. Absolutely. So I'm going to start with some basic general questions, I think questions that really kind of cover the basic ideas about covering journalism. And, and the first one, that, that the obvious question is, is, can you talk a little bit about some of the difficulties covering an area that doesn't usually lend itself to openness and transparency. I mean, most of these actions of these organizations are not for public knowledge. And of course, in fact, just the opposite is true. Yeah, yeah. I, I always tell people that it's a really fascinating assignment, but it also can be very, very frustrating. Um, it's really different. I mean, I, I work in a group at the Post of National Security Reporters, so I work alongside people who cover the Pentagon or the State Department or the Justice Department or the FBI. And, um, you know, their, their jobs are so different. I mean, they, they travel with the secretaries of defense or state on planes all over the place. They, you know, if you cover the military, you can go embed with um, U.S. military units in places all over the world. Um, it just does not work that way. No. Cover, it tells me I cannot go <laughs> as much as I've tried and do an embed with the CIA station in Kabul. You know, it just for some reason they won't let me. Let me ask you about anonymous sources, um, because this is how, in, in some cases, if not most cases, you're getting a lot of your information. Uh, I don't have to tell you you've done journalism long enough to know that this can be real problems associated with this. Uh, one of the main ones, of course, is the inability to verify stories. It's not like what you talked about, other 
people who cover other things. It's not like there's a politifact for intelligence. You know, you can't sports guys can look at stats if someone's lying. How how difficult is it to to have to deal with anonymous sources? And of course, uh, how do you go about dealing with those in the way that you report on intelligence? Well, I would say there's two things. One is, you know, there's a trade-off here. It's, it's no journalist sets out to, to build stories strictly on anonymous sources. If we all um, had our way, none of these sources would be anonymous. They would all be speaking for the record. We'd be able to identify them by name. It would certainly help us and help our, our credibility uh, as an institution. Um, but, you know, for the reasons I just sort of outlined in answer to the previous question, that's almost impossible, especially in, an, in the realm of covering intelligence agencies where, you know, the people we're writing about take polygraph tests in which they're asked if you had any contact with the news media. Um, so the, the trade-off is, you know, putting together information that we think the, the public ought to know and needs to know versus adhering to sourcing standards that, that lend greater transparency. And so there's always a significant amount of tension there. I mean, there's a great vulnerability, I think, in intelligence reporting. Um, and you sort of touched on it. It's, there have been cases, thankfully very infrequent cases, where there have been you know, fabrications. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the USA Today stories of a decade or more ago now and, um, and others where you're right, there is no correcting mechanism, unlike there is in other assignments where there are, there are public officials and institutions that can speak up and say, no, that's wrong, and this is the right answer. In, in the intelligence reporting, it's very hard for the CIA or other agencies to step forward and say, that story got it wrong, and here's what really happened, and this is the right answer. They can't do it. Their, their own secrecy mm-hmm. prevents them from correcting what becomes a public record. Um, so... I always feel like we in the, who cover this beat have um, have to show take extra care um, because the the stuff we get in our stories, if it's wrong, can become more than just urban myth. It can it will be propagated for a long time. I mean, especially a paper like the Washington Post that mm-hmm. is you know a paper of record in many cases. Yeah, I mean that's a it's a serious responsibility. If you're lied to, if you're fed purposeful disinformation from an anonymous source. Does that uh, eliminate your requirement to keep that source anonymous? And this is more hypothetical, more journalism 101 kind yeah, of thing. Thankfully, in my case, that is a hypothetical. I've never had a case where somebody uh, misled me intentionally in such a way that it led to the publication of something that proved to be you know, really egregiously erroneous. Um, of course, we deal with sources all the time who have agendas, mm-hmm. who have limited understanding or visibility into the things they're talking about and maybe overstating their their knowledge. Um, But I I would, I mean, we're in a hypothetical here, but I I would think that if a a source willfully and intentionally misled a news organization, that source surrenders whatever anonymous protection that that person thought he had negotiated. I mean, I I understand how sacrosanct keeping Mm -hmm. sources... Are I mean, James Risen is a great example of someone mm-hmm. willing to go to prison for that. Um, let me ask you about the Obama administration. The Obama administration has been, let's use the word notorious, uh, about cracking down on leakers, on people passing information to the press. There have been more people prosecuted for leaking information to the to the to the to journalists under the Obama administration than every other administration combined since the passage of the Espionage Act in 1917. You've been doing this for a while, so you did. You were working this pre-Obama. 
how much has this affected your ability to do your job? It has had a significant effect. I mean, uh, it it is not uncommon now to to make to try to introduce yourself to somebody, somebody new who you you want to cultivate as a source, and to have to face that really difficult question. Well, look, I'm seeing all these leak, leaks cases, all these prosecutions. What kind of protection can you provide me? And you have to be honest in that. I mean, you, you it's a difficult question to answer, and um, and it does have this chilling effect on on our relationships with with sources. Um, and, you know, it's also changed our, our behavior in some ways. Um, in some ways it has, in some ways it hasn't. It's interesting because the most sensitive conversations you have with sources now, I think, almost have to be in person. You have to, you have to protect that person by not using a phone, not using email, not using all this technology that supposedly makes our job so much easier. Um, because I think there are two factors in these prosecutions that, that have enabled them. One is just the, the intent, the intent of the administration, the intent of the Justice Department, and the other is the, these digital trails that all of us leave in our wake every day. So they just, it's easier for them to bring these cases because there is more, um, more evidence that they can gather without our awareness. Amazingly, you're, you're the third person to make that exact point. Both Mark Mazzetti and Ali Watkins talked about the idea that it's very... It's so much easier for the Justice Department or the NSA or anyone else to track what can, should be considered, mm-hmm. you know, privileged conversations. I mean, I almost equate it to, a, you know, a doctor or a lawyer and their clients or their patients. The idea that, you know, this should be something with a free press, that you should be able to have conversations with yeah, sources. not everybody sees it that way. Well, right, anyway. of course. <laughs> of course. Um, you've been doing this, as we talked about in the introduction, for quite some time. Um, you know, you've written about the areas of intelligence and national security to the point where you must know these areas incredibly well. Uh, it's hard to do this without becoming, maybe emotionally is the wrong word, but psychologically attached in some way. Uh, you know, either familiarity breeds contempt, as it does in some people, journalists who make it their life mission to kind of go after the intelligence agencies, or you could easily become a, a spokesperson for the IC or the mm-hmm. DOD. How do you avoid this? How do you maintain your journalistic objectivity knowing these people so well, being involved in it, seeing maybe more than the rest of us do, things you can't tell, obviously, because they're secret, but you're privy to some of this information where you see things that others don't. Yeah, well, I think it's just sort of adhering to and and remaining committed to the principles that got you into journalism in the first place and your mission as a reporter. I mean, your mission is truth. Your mission is to inform the public. It is, uh, and, and, you're, and you never want to lose sight of that. Your, your mission is not to protect uh, the uh, equities of these institutions we cover or even our sources. It's, it's, to, it's to get beyond that. And um, um, I, I, I have, I've never approached this beat from a, with a sort of prosecutorial mindset where I feel like I'm setting out each day to, to um, expose the mendacity of this agency or that agency or this official or that official. I mean, it, it's, it's a, a combination of just real curiosity about what's happening in the world and what are the implications of, of what our intelligence agencies, U.S. intelligence agencies, are doing elsewhere. Um, with, um, I, I think also, uh, you know, over time you learn as a reporter that, um, that you, your success to a large degree reflects the extent to which you are respected, not loved, mm-hmm. um, um, not spun, but respected. And I think that requires a, an ability to write stories that can be really uncomfortable, right? Write stories that are going to 
anger. Your sources anger the agencies you cover, uh, but handle them in a way that's fair enough that you can then come back afterward and still have a relationship right. with that agency. Journalists have become the story recently in, in some very famous events. Uh, in some cases, journalists have become the story because he or she has been taken hostage, you know, the case of James Foley or Stephen Sotloff. In other cases, journalists have become the story because of his or her part in revealing information. The Glenn Greenwald is a good example. Cy Hirsch is someone we can bring up over and over again. This goes back to Woodward and Bernstein, of course. The CIA actually tries not to use journalists as covers overseas, actually a rule that they don't, although it's not always kept up, uh, mainly because a lot of people perceive journalists as already being intelligence collectors in some way. And there's no need to exacerbate that. So without taking anything away from any of these journalists, certainly the heroes that were murdered or the people like Greenwald and others that many, many people consider heroes, where is the line? How far should journalists be willing to go to get a story? How far should they be willing to go to put themselves inside of a story? I know this is kind of a graduate journalism seminar question, you know, but in, in a basic sense, uh, I'm not saying how far would you really want to go put your life on the line? The question's more about the Greenwald side of things. Like how much, because you're covering things, because you're breaking scoops, how conscious and how cognizant do you need to be about making sure you don't become part of the story yourself? Yeah, I mean, Glenn Greenwald's position on this is obviously that that objectivity is false. It's just sort of a fundamental falsehood of journalism, and and I don't I don't agree with that. I don't I don't subscribe to that, and I don't think any of my peers on this beat really subscribe to that. I don't I think it would be hard for anybody to make the case that um, reporters like those you've had as guests of this program are beholden to the agencies that they cover in any way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the opposite. Um, um, we, we take the, the public responsibility aspect of this job really seriously. And, and I don't think you use the term being reporters being part of or inside the story, and I don't think it's ever our – we should ever be part of or inside the story. I mean, obviously, prosecutions are different in, in pursuit of sto- – and journalists. So we, the Post has uh, one of my colleagues, uh, a foreign correspondent, Jason Rezaian, mm-hmm. who's our – um, covers Iran has been in jail for a year now um, under completely mysterious circumstances with no public accounting uh, for the, the charges of the trial underway uh, and no clear end in sight. Um, so, you know, we, we're, we're keenly aware of the, of the risks that we take. I think, I think what we've seen over, in, over the past year in, in Syria has been particularly alarming for obvious reasons. And and I, I, I would be surprised if news organizations all around the country have not undergone a, a major recalculation of the, of the risks that they're willing to endure or allow their, their own reporters to expose themselves to. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler, You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
So the Washington Post has been around for, for a long, long time, as has things like the New York Times. We talked to Ali Watkins from Huffington Post. How has new media and the advent of social media and the Internet changed the way the traditional papers are doing their jobs? What I mean by that is, you know, before the Internet, you could, you could find a story at 11 a.m., work on it all day, and for the print paper the following day or even maybe a Sunday edition. Now the expectation is you get it out in an hour you know, whether it's fact-checked as well as it could be or not, you're always constantly looking for the next thing as quickly as possible. How has that changed journalism, specifically intelligence journalism, where things aren't always as obvious as they may seem at first? You're right. I mean, it's, a, it's an enormous transformation, um, and it's, it, it hasn't taken that long. It was not that long ago that we were all still looking for that front-page story in the, in the timeline that you described that was centered on the production of a piece of paper that would be delivered to driveways every morning. Um, I mean, at the Washington Post, uh, the, the thing we all have in common now is that we're all digital publications. Mm-hmm. The Washington Post and New York Times, all uh, at the Huffington Post, we're all digital publications, and our cycle, our whole production cycle and reporting cycle is geared around delivering this content digitally now, which in cases of news stories often means writing two or three versions of it on a, on a day, getting something up quickly on the website, and then working through that one or two or three more times before it actually runs in the, the physical paper. Um, and, you know... At, at the Post and other places, a lot of our audience does not come from people typing in WashingtonPost.com in their browser in the morning. It comes from social media and Facebook and Twitter. So we're all highly encouraged to use these these platforms to broadcast what we're writing about. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's just going to intensify. Let, let me let me f- finish this general area by really focusing on the biggest question, the most broad-based question here. As an intelligence reporter, you have to walk a fine line between informing the public and maintaining national security. Can we do both? I assume the answer is yes. Let me me throw this at you. Do you tend to err on the side of national security, or are you a public should know first unless otherwise notified? I mean, maybe there's no if or or. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's kind of a, a combination of both. Let me throw that question in your direction. I mean, I think for journalists, for reporters in particular, um, who are not executive editors, our, our impulse should be publication is our priority. Dissemination of information meaningful to the public should be our priority. Now, with that said, I mean, part of what we do, especially as intelligence reporters, is uh, try to be very careful in evaluating um, and measuring the public value of what we're writing about versus any potential risk, whether it's operational risk, which is sort of less an issue, I think, less deserving of that much consideration than a risk to a specific individual, right? I mean, we're writing oftentimes about people who are being detained overseas, um, and, um, and, and, and it's possible that disclosure of that can complicate efforts to get them released. Right. So we have to be extremely careful about how we weigh those decisions. I mean, just being from my, my time at the Post, I've had, I don't know, maybe 10 instances where we have learned something, we're writing something, we actually put a story together or start drafting a story that we're either asked not to run at all or asked to obscure portions of it, to remove parts of that because of what it might expose and how it might undermine some counterterrorism operation that the government argues would is critical to the safety of the people in this country and others. Um, 
I don't, you know, one thing that the public should understand is as a reporter who's invested in learning this stuff and writing that story and wants the credit that goes with it mm-hmm. at the end, I don't make that decision in the end. Right. That is, is a decision that usually gets made at much higher levels. I mean, I get to make my case, but um, but every editor I've worked for at the Los Angeles Times and the, and the Washington Post now, they take that responsibility very seriously. It's not to say that the decisions that they make right. uh, always are, are always greeted um, by the agencies we're writing about with appreciation or, or um, respect or even agreement, but um, it is something that news organizations take very seriously. If a couple of years ago you got an email from an anonymous source he didn't identify himself, but he said he had millions of documents about illegal NSA spying. Eventually, you found that this was Edward Snowden. Would you, forget the Washington Post would have done, would you advocate posting that information as Greenwald and The Intercept and The Guardian have done? Is that something, I know, hypothetical question, uh, but is, would you advocate uh, releasing the Snowden information to the public? Well, in the case of Snowden, that's not that, those weren't his wishes, right? I mean, he the terms of his provision of that material to my colleague at the Post, Bart Gelman, were precluded. That I mean, he he went to journalists for a reason. He did, he could have just released it to WikiLeaks, or I mean, God God knows he was cap- certainly capable of just releasing that stuff online if that's what he'd wanted to see happen. And there are those who argue that the Post is doing a disservice to the public, and it's not our mission to keep sitting on some of that material mm-hmm. and not releasing it, but. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think that, um, you know, it's a, it's a hard case to make. It's hard to convince the public otherwise. It can be. Uh, but the secrets and the sensitivity of information like that, I think, requires us to exercise extraordinary responsibility in what we do with it. I mean, internally at the Post, that meant the stewardship of that material required us taking certain precautions to protecting it from theft and other things mm-hmm. that I had never seen done with any other subject or any other material in my life, um, but also in the reporting of it. Uh, I mean, I worked closely with, with Bart Gelman on, on some of the NSA stories and many of the NSA stories, and we, I mean, we, we at one point had a meeting at the headquarters of the Director for National Intelligence in which there were representatives from every single spy agency sitting out in front of us. It was like a talk show when we were the guests up on the stage. They wanted to know where we were going with some of these mm-hmm. stories and what was coming next. And the looks on their faces were just clearly mainly of dismay and outrage. Uh, and, and, you know, we were undertaking to try to convince them that we were trying to report this responsibly. But that was, that was part of the interaction between the Washington Post and the government over how this material right. was being treated. There, there are some, I mean, people within the intelligence community are as torn about Snowden as the general public, and there are some that would argue uh, that the revelation of the domestic spying was perhaps necessary. There are, there, even those argue that the revelation of the foreign intelligence operations are, well, those are legitimate foreign intelligence operations, and perhaps the real damage done to the United States was in the revelation of spying with the, on Germany, some of the anti-counterterrorism tactics. Was there a conversation, uh, you may not be able to answer this question, was there at least an internal conversation in your head, so you can speak for yourself, about releasing the domestic stuff and not necessarily the foreign intelligence stuff? I think there was there were ongoing conversations, and they, and they were continuous, and they, there were many, many conversations that were that didn't just split in between domestic and foreign, but split over whether, what, was there a, a compelling 
public need to know about some of the material that's in this? I mean, we, Bart and I wrote lengthy stories about just the budget documents, the budget of the spy agencies for the CIA, the NSA, and others, which were highly illuminating. And we didn't include a lot of stuff in there that gets at their their deepest sort of vulnerabilities that they expose in those budget mm-hmm. in those budget submissions to Congress. Um, and there, there are other aspects that we didn't. But overall, we thought to, you know, whatever the, the administration's argument that we shouldn't write anything about that, it was, it, there was no way we, we could agree with that. The public had, in the wake of 9-11 and the massive buildup of this intelligence apparatus over the last 15 years, it's almost impossible to concede that the public has no right mm-hmm. to know the broad outlines of where this money is going and how it's being spent. So let me ask you more specifically about your career in the past. When you were at the LA Times, you wrote several stories and you actually broke a pretty important story about CIA relationship with Pakistan. Uh, And this is something that comes up again and again with podcast guests and programs that we do and questions here about this country. But Pakistan, in many cases, is the the central figure of the Middle East, the way Pakistan goes, the Middle East can go in many cases. And, of course, the relationship between American intelligence and the ISI, and can they be trusted? Uh, They're our best friends and our worst enemies. They're supporting al-Qaeda and the Taliban while at the same time supporting American power in the Middle East. And, of course, bin Laden and everybody else seems to find safe haven in Pakistan. Can you talk a little bit about your coverage of Pakistan, including some of the stories that you've written even back at the LA Times, and how you've seen that relationship evolve uh, over the... I know it's a big, broad question, but just whatever you want to tackle when it comes to that. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a relationship of extreme dysfunction. Um, in some cases, the, you, you've, we've seen case, instances where it's worked really effectively. I mean, the, the capture of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, some of the early successes in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks were real... Um, sort of joint operations in which the CIA and the Pakistani authorities were working hand in hand. But they were never as much, even then, even in those cases, they were always completely wary and distrustful of one another. And that's what you've seen play out over and over again in all of these, in all of the major stories involving Pakistan, including the bin Laden operation and the decision not to, to not inform the Pakistanis that that was underway until afterward. Um, I mean, I actually have made several trips to Pakistan, and one of the most interesting trips I've taken in in all of the, my years covering this stuff was flying with Pakistani military into um, the tribal areas um, where Al Qaeda and the Taliban have been based for a long time, and seeing their their remote outposts out there and the extent to which they were engaged in this fight. And I think the Pakistanis you know, can make a case that they have been engaged in trying to do the right thing in, other, in some of these cases. Uh, I, I mean, on the, on the other hand, it's almost impossible to, uh, to believe that based on how, how bin Laden was located mm. and how much is allowed to continue to happen in these tribal areas. I find it a fascinating relationship, and we often end up writing about it as this, this, this sort of dysfunctional mm-hmm. relationship. There, there are two recent news stories um, from the last couple of days that have been picked up across the board. One is that India and Pakistan, yet again, exchange fire over the border. And the second one that's been uh, just about every news outlet's reported on it is that Pakistan may soon become the nuclear power with the third most nuclear weapons of, uh, after the United States and Russia. Uh, how does this play into the broader discussion about can they be trusted? You know, uh, it, 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 a lot of people would argue that this is where 
the next major war is going to break out. A lot of people would argue that this is arguably the most unstable area. Uh, how does that play into, I mean, I guess it's a very leading question. I, I assume there's a very specific answer to it, but well, I just want to hear you talk about it. Uh, I mean, you, those two things illuminate one phenomenon, which is that um, Pakistan sort of security organizing principle for its national security apparatus is, is defense against India or aggression against India. It is that, and that is where the U.S. interests and Pakistani interests diverge, mm-hmm. right? So the U.S. has been has spent 15 years trying to convince Pakistani, look, your real fight is against militancy. It's against Islamist militancy. It is. It is you are you are creating an enemy within. You're never going to be able to clean up and get and deal with. Um, and it's because you're so focused on India as a threat that you are overlooking this other thing that's eating you away from inside your country. The Pakistanis completely disagree with that. I mean, they see India as their only existential threat. And these, the, the militancy is something that they have seen as a way to sort of manage, if not exploit, their, uh, their ability to maneuver in and around India. Um, so, I mean, I think that's a, that just sort of speaks goes directly to the disconnect mm-hmm. between the United States and Pakistan. I, I will say that, you know, the subject of Pakistan's nuclear capabilities often comes up, and um, it's, a, it's a big source of concern, obviously. But U.S. officials generally seem to believe that Pakistan's nuclear facilities and its actual nuclear weapons are, are well-kept, are, are safe, right? I mean, you, you, they're... The, the level of panic over the prospect of those being intercepted or stolen or misused is relatively low uh, among people who should know, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, are, and are paid to worry about it. On, an, on another point, Tyler Drumheller just died, uh, former chief of the CIA's European division, and, and he's most famously known as the guy who tried to warn everyone about curveball. Uh, one thing you're known for is your work in, in breaking the part of the curveball story. Can you talk a little bit about that process, being going back to full, you know, first finding out about this intelligence asset, if you want to use putting air quotes around asset, and the role of curveball in getting us into Iraq in 03? Yeah, well, I mean, so that all centers on this on this claim, this assertion under the Bush administration that the Iraq, that Iraq under Saddam Hussein had developed and built these mobile biological weapons laboratories, essentially laboratories on trucks or rails that could be moved around the country to evade detection, but still turn out um, dangerous, dangerous weapons. Um, and, I mean, it was such a, an outlandish claim, and so intriguing that it, it it just was one of the first things to come under real scrutiny after the war started mm-hmm. well where are these bio where are these right. labs and they couldn't find them i mean initially they found what they thought might be a lab but it turned out to just be a, a regular truck for producing hydrogen for weather balloons and and surveillance balloons uh and they never surfaced because they never existed which led to you know serious investigations as to why right. How, where did that come from and why and you know, you're right. I mean, at the, at the at the LA Times, we were the first to report that most of this case had rested on a an informant who an Iraqi defector who'd gone to Germany and who was given this crazily apt code name, Curveball. It was just too right. irresistible, right? I mean, it was an amazing story about the lies that this guy, who since has been identified and admitted that he did this, um, to the, the the utter fabrication behind this central claim that led the United States into war in Iraq. 
as I mentioned before, you're also the co-author of a book, The Interrogators, Task Force 500 in America's Secret War Against Al-Qaeda, which you co-wrote. Essentially, it's a memoir uh, with a man, a pseudonym, Chris Mackey, uh, and it's his, his detailed firsthand account of an interrogation of Taliban figures and al-Qaeda terrorists in Afghanistan at the very beginning of that war. What's interesting to me, and I want to ask you about the process of writing this book, uh, was that as far as I had seen, as of what I've read, this book was fully vetted by the Pentagon. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it was because, because Chris uh, was, um, you know, he was, he was an interrogator. He was an Army mm-hmm. interrogator. And so he was obligated to submit this, this um, work, which was largely his account and the accounts of some of his colleagues. During the, you know, these were the first interrogators who went into Afghanistan after the outset of that war. So, yeah, we were required to go through which this vetting ex- process by the yeah. Pentagon, which was, was excruciating. But it's extraordinary that they, I mean, they've let some of the stuff in that book go through. Uh, it's, it, well, w- one of the things that we learned through that process is, is it's totally haphazard, or at least it was then. I mean, so they basically took chunks of this book and divvied it up and split, sent this chunk off to this person. And, you know, it just were – they were sent out to various people, all of whom looked at it through different filters, looking mm-hmm. for different things with dis- different sensitivities. And so the feedback that we got was utterly inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me end with a broad question that should hopefully give you a ton of leeway how to answer it. answer this any way you want to. You've covered intelligence for more than a decade. What has changed in that time? How is it different today? And, and now, obviously, the natural follow-up is, is what has remained the same? Just from not changed in intelligence, what has changed in covering intelligence? How has your job – how is it different than it was when you first started? Well, I think when I first started um – there basically were just a small number of news organizations that devoted the resources to covering intelligence agencies on a day-to-day basis. Um, and since then, you know, because of the digital stuff we've talked about, there is just a proliferation of coverage. Uh, some of it really great, some of it not so great, uh, but, but there is a lot more of it. And um, people who are not even working for a news organization who are, have established identities, incredible identities, as people who are scrubbing the materials that come out or released by Congress or released by other things. So there's just, I think there's just so much more coverage in some ways than there was that there's there's both a lot more meaningful and valuable coverage as well as a lot more noise. Um, I think, I don't think that that necessarily has meant that we end up with more sophisticated coverage of spy agencies because, um, because part of this is the competition and the, and the diminution of resources for big news organizations like the Washington Post and the LA Times and all the cuts that they've had to go through over the years has made it, has, has shortened kind of horizons for working on things and has led to fewer resources within newsrooms for sustained scrutiny of things like the CIA, entities like the CIA. Um, but you know, there, there's a bigger community. There's a bigger community and, 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 and more journalism and scrutiny of spy agencies now than there was back then, and I think that's a good thing. Is that, and this might be a chicken-egg comment, uh, is that because of the work that, that journalists have done, that there's a broader knowledge among the public, a broader uh, you know, thirst for knowledge among, among the public about these intelligence agencies, that you now is almost a, a cyclical, a kind of a, a snowballing effect where there's more information out there about the intelligence agencies, which makes the public want to know more because they know a little bit. I'm thinking back 
to the 80s and 90s where NSA was no such agency and no one even knew to ask. And people were very content about letting the intelligence agencies do their own black intelligence stuff. Now you obviously don't see that. Is that a response of 9-11? Is that a response to journalists covering intelligence more? Is there no real answer to that question? Uh, I think I know I'm putting him on the spot in this case, but can you talk a little bit about what you think? Well, you're getting at something. There's a real fundamental tension in, in a democracy and in the United States between you know a, a, the expectation of public accountability of, the, of our government and these entities that exist in secrecy and need to exist in a certain amount of secrecy to function. And, um, you know, the NSA... I think was the last to give up on this idea. And maybe they still haven't completely given up on it. They were, um, they for a long time have been among the least responsive agencies when you're, as a reporter, when you're trying to just ask basic questions uh, or you've learned something and you want to just run it past them. Until the Snowden disclosures. I mean, it dragged the NSA into the modern sort of reporting era, kicking and screaming. I think that many people there realized at some point that that trying to hide from this was never going to work, that the only way that they were going to get their version of this story out was to start engaging, uh, and that the exposure was so great that they couldn't afford to do otherwise. So NSA was sort of late to that realization. CIA, I think, was much earlier to that realization and, and it preceded me. I mean, the, it's always sort of protected its equities in terms of how the public perceives it. But in a, in a big-picture way, look, in, after the 9-11 attacks... These spy services, like the CIA, were just so much more important mm. to us, right? They all, they all grew many times over in, so, in, the, in the size of their budgets, in, in, the, in the number of employees. Um, they expanded dramatically overseas. Their role um, was more important in keeping the United States protected from terrorism and other things. And, you know, they found themselves at the center of all of these controversies because they were pushing bound, legal, moral, and ethical and other boundaries while they were at it. So it became a, a much, much bigger story. And, uh, and I think that, um, I think if you look back at the post 9-11 period, at all of the corrections, the major corrections, the closure of the CIA's secret prisons, the, the controversy about it, the interrogation the methods that it's used, the, the drone campaign and the um, civilian casualties associated with it. I mean, just to ask yourself, how much would the public know about any of that if it weren't for a, a highly functional press? Greg Miller covers the intelligence beat for the Washington Post. He is also the author, co-author of the Interrogators Task Force 500 in America's Secret War Against Al Qaeda. Greg, thank you for taking the time to join us here at the International Spy Museum. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's spycast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. 
please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.